Luke chapter 18, reading from verse 9 through to 14. And this is what the Word of God says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Many people, including some of us here this morning, believe that Christianity teaches us that in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to be validated, in order to be approved by God, that we must work hard to appease Him. In short, some of us, we believe that we can earn our salvation. We must do all that religion requires of us. We must work harder uh, in order to fulfill certain requirements, in order to receive the affirmation and the acceptance of God. Now, I'm not ignorant to think that everyone here believes in God or believes in a deity, but I, I, I do believe that, that this desire for acceptance is not only confined to those religious types like us. I think that many non-religious people uh, with the same have the same perspective that many of us do. I instead of appeasing a god or a deity, you, you work for the approval and the acceptance of maybe someone else. Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a supervisor, maybe it's your spouse. Uh, success then becomes a means of finding approval. A relationship becomes a means of finding acceptance and so on. I think that most of us, if not all of us, desires deep within our hearts to be approved and affirmed, to be loved, to be accepted, to be validated, to be deemed worthy. You know, some of us are pretty overt when it comes to this search for approval. It reveals itself in our relationships and in our insecurities in those relationships. Others hide this better than some. Yet the deep longing remains and the pursuit continues within the heart of humanity. This deep need for approval for that which only God ultimately can offer. But Orthodox Christianity, true religion that Jesus speaks about, places our righteousness not in our own hands. It is not about our work or our best efforts. It's not about our accomplishments or keeping the rules. Jesus teaches, in this text in particular, that our righteousness, our acceptance, and our approval that comes from God, our justification as ones who are called, uh, who God has called, is not contingent upon me first and foremost, but it is a free gift given to us by the mercy of God. Now, there are other well-meaning religions in our world that speaks about a means of inheriting appeasement or peace or shalom. But Christianity asserts the following, 
that all of Christian faith is a response to that which God offers freely. We cannot buy it. We cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how righteous we are, no matter how much we do religiously, according to Scripture, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only by the grace of God that comes through His Son, that comes through mercy, that you and I can be saved. All of faith is a response to the mercy of God. And all God's people said, Amen. So this morning our text teaches us what religion looks like when it's free or void of God's mercy. And then the text offers us a solution if we see ourselves as the people who are religious but without mercy. I uh, have preached on this message many t- on this text many times, but for me this past week has been a convicting week. Uh, you know, a week in which uh, the, the, this truth was 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 made personal to me. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's easy for me as 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 a person who preaches the word to consider that the primary use of the word of God is to find a good message to preach to you. But you do know that the primary responsibility of any well-meaning Christian who wants to take Jesus serious is to ask, "What is the word saying to me?" How does the word speak to my heart? How does the word soften my heart? How is God trying to do in me something which he knows need be done? And may I say to you this morning that there is much that God is yet to accomplish in my heart. One of it being turning my self-righteousness into the posture of appreciating the mercy and thanking God that he has looked upon me with such great grace. For when I understand how much mercy I received, it transforms me as a person. I no longer judge others based upon my sense of righteousness, for I am not saved by my personal religious righteousness. I am saved by the grace that comes freely through the mercy of God. And i got to tell you this morning, I feel a little like a black Baptist pastor. You have to, please, for the love of all that is good this morning, respond with an amen, because that is truth that liberates It's going to get better. (laughs) So this morning our text teaches us what religion looks like without God's mercy and then offers us a solution, a way to return. First of all, religion without the mercy of God in this text then is all about my personal performance and how others perceive me. You know, the Pharisees in the text... By the way, the text does not only address the Pharisees, we know they are in view, but it's also speaking to disciples. And early in Luke's gospel, we quite easily see how disciples can also start to navel-gaze and think too much of themselves. So this includes, both in the biblical context and for us today, a word for all disciples, including those of us who really need to hear it. The Pharisees in the text represents righteousness. In fact, Jesus says at his baptism in Matthew's gospel that for the sake of righteousness, I, you must do this, John. But the righteousness that Jesus speaks of is certainly not the righteousness of the Pharisees. The righteousness of the Pharisees was directed to the self. 
It is about him, the Pharisee. He begins his prayer by thanking God, uh, and then everything else that follows is a prayer about his personal achievements and performance. He fasts twice a week. He pays a tithe. For those of you not familiar with the concept, this is a tenth of his income. Amen. On everything. He prays. He is honest as opposed to a robber. He is good and not an evil person. Listen to this. He is faithful and not an adulterer. He has done everything on paper to impress God and he certainly feels impressed with himself. Yet, according to the text, when he leaves the temple... After praying, he leaves as one who is not righteous, one who is not justified. He leaves the same way he came in. He was never searching for mercy because he did not believe he needed it. In fact, people who are self-righteous, it is all about saving ourselves. We put effort into what we do, and we hope that others would recognize and affirm our goodness. People who are performance-driven are seeking deep down within their heart an affirmation that does not come based upon how good we think we are and the opinions of others. You know, people who perform like this Pharisee don't need God for their salvation. Just their own effort, their own determination, their own duty, their own responsibility, their own obedience, their own religion. But is this what Jesus is speaking about? You know, this performance-driven, self-righteous type of religion never leads to peace. You never feel at peace when it's about performance because you always have to be performing. You're never at peace with other people's perspectives of you because sometimes people like you even when you do your best and sometimes they don't. Sometimes people recognize your efforts and sometimes they don't. You see, when you are driven by performance and the approval of others, then your actions becomes your justification. You believe that it is by your goodness, maybe your church attendance and maybe your double tithes to everybody here today that saves you. But according to Jesus, you've missed the point. Is this... The kind of religion that you perceive. Do do you know that agnostic, atheistic people tend to think of our Christian faith in this way? And you know why I think? It's because we tend to believe this to be true about our faith. It's not like they just got it anywhere. They got it from well-meaning Christians. We we, we tend to believe that, that our performance and our personal sense of morality is ultimately what makes us who we are. But not only does this type of life not lead to peace, it never challenges and it never encourages others to seek after God. Listen, when you are the measurement of salvation, do you want anybody else to come and join you? When people look at our lives and they think that is the standard, are they attracted? Are they, are they, are they interested? 
If it's about how good I am and what I do, how does that speak to the brokenness and the realities of this world? If it's about me getting it all figured out and drawing attention to myself, there is no room for the grace and the love of God. We shine the light on ourselves and we do not shine the light on the one who is worthy. Not only does this merciless religion result in performance, but this kind of religion results in judgmental attitudes. I judge instead of love. You know, the Pharisees described as a man who, uh, who was confident in his own righteousness and who looked down on others. In another translation, it says, he had contempt for others. So, so I went to the dictionary. I know we're all smart. We know what contempt means. But, but let me just give you a, a, a refresher, a reminder. This is what contempt means. Contempt, me, contempt means the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration. Worthless or deserving scorn. Now, it should amaze us that a person can stand in a holy place like the temple and pray while at the same time having a heart that despises others. However, history has shown us that many vile things have been done by people who confess to be or profess to be religious toward their neighbor while claiming to be righteous before God. The question we must ask in this text is, how is this possible? How can religion be so misguided? How can we think that we are so right and yet miss the point so much? How can we profess to love God and yet despise our neighbor? Our text makes it clear that when our salvation is about our actions, about our sense of righteousness, then it is easy for anybody else who does not look like us to become our enemy and not our neighbor. You see, because here is where I want to get to. Who saves you, defines you. That's a good point. And here's where good preaching, they teach you this in Bible school, when you make a good point, you pause. And you look pensive. Let me say it again. Who saves you, defines you. So if your religion is about your works, your self-righteousness, then you define your self-worth based upon the acts you do, the things you don't do. When your sense of acceptance comes from the approval of others, when it's about your achievement or your personal success or how much you know, then that defines you. But it is only when You are saved by the mercy of a gracious God in which He becomes your identity. That you are truly transformed to not allow anything less to shape who you are. I have to ask the question again, maybe in a different way. Who is your salvation? What is our salvation? What is my salvation? What is it about my life that says to me that there is something more valuable, more important that I'm seeking after because in it I believe I will find what I truly want. Because anything that is not of God can become not only our idol, but it can define us. 
you know, God is merciful, and when He is our Savior, mercy is our lifeblood and our perspective. Mercy results in mercy, while self-righteousness, listen to this, results in contempt for anyone who does not contribute to my personal sense of righteousness. Let me ask you this morning, if your life goes something like this, people are always disappointing me. People are always not living up to what I want them to live up to. You know how they do that? You may be a redneck when. I thought that was a common kind of thing. I'm sorry. If I offended anybody here, I certainly don't think of any of you as rednecks. You may be self-righteous when. It's always someone else's fault. You, you, may, you may be self-righteous when, um, when people just don't live up to your sense of what they need to live up to. Can you see how convicting this is for your pastor? You, you may be self-righteous when your perspective of others is always one of judgment. You, you, know, when you, are, you know when you are self-righteous? Start with the people closest to you and ask yourself this question. Will they define me as merciful? Will they look at me as gracious? Will they think of me as patient? Will they think of me as kind? Or will they think of me as judgmental, always holding before them how they are not meeting the requirement, how they are not living up to the standard? You see, God is merciful. The question is, are we? And I offered you two characteristics of religion that is free of mercy. Let me offer you, I believe, what I believe to be the way in, the way in which the text offers us a solution. You know, there's a scripture in Micah, in the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, that, that, that we all know. It's, it goes like this, and when I read it, some of you will be able to quote it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, you know what the next phrase is? And to love mercy. You know what the text says? The text says that the solution is that we must learn to love mercy. You see, mercy in our text, just stay with me for a moment. Mercy in our text means to seek reconciliation. Mercy here is about being restored by the one who is able to actually judge us and hold things against us. But mercy is about asking God to look upon us as we are, whether we're sinners or don't think we are sinners, and to not hold anything against us. It is about receiving forgiveness and being restored. And the tax collector who comes in, the one thing he knows about this God is that this God is merciful. And so he almost demands it. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You are merciful. You see, we have the tendency to think that mercy is cheap. But in order for God to forgive, in order for God to restore, in order for God to take the tax collector unto himself as a son, he paid a great price Mercy comes at the price of His Son, Jesus Christ, who took our sin, offered us forgiveness, and paid for it with His life. And let me say it this way. We ought to do all we can to give thanks for the mercy of God, for none of us deserve it. 
Oh, when mercy grabs a hold of, of our lives, when we realize, you know, and, and, and I, I got to say it this way too, I think that if I was to be quite honest with you, there are times in which I live in the mercy, you know, I'm, I'm saved by mercy, Jeff, you know, sorry, Pastor Jeff, and, and there are times, and there are times in which I, I live in my own self-righteous smock. You know, can I get an Amen. I'm walking this road alone today, Josh. You know, there, there, there are times in which, in which, in which I, I, I get this and there are times in which I don't. And so I, I looked at the scripture and I said, God, please don't just leave me with two good points, but give me the whole story, okay? And, and, and it doesn't always happen in scripture, but I, I believe that there are two things we can do. Two things we can do to live in mercy. The first is simply this. I can find my notes. Uh, we, we must come before God as the tax collector did, not the Pharisee. And how did he come before God? With humility. You know, the, the, only, the only response to the great mercy of God is humble hearts. And here this morning, in this church, there ought to be a movement of God's Spirit that humbles our hearts so much so that our response to God is all that matters. And our response is not, is not going to be deterred by anybody. Our response is not going to be withheld. We're not going to be embarrassed by it. Neither are we going to hold back and say, this is not really for me, or ignore it, as some of you may do this morning. But here, here here's, here's how we respond. We respond by humbling ourselves in the sight of God and in the sight of man. You know, you know what I love about our tradition? Our tradition has, has altars. I know some, some of us kind of go, the altar speaks of weakness, right? The altar speaks of need. But you know what the altar is? The altar is a place of humbling one's knee, of, of bowing down and saying, God, you know what? I do need your mercy. I don't have it all figured out. No matter what others think of me, what you think of me matters more. And so I will humbly bow my knee, whether at an altar or in a pew or in my home by my bed. I will consistently humble myself in the sight of God, for he alone is worthy of praise. And if I do not, I allow pride to dictate and I become the self-righteous person who saves myself consistently by doing good things. But those who humble themselves, the scripture says, he will raise up. You know what Jesus did in Philippians 2? He, he humbled himself. He became like a servant, taking the form of man, taking the form of flesh. You know why he did it? He did it out of love. And you know what he trusted? He trusted that at the end, God will raise him up. You listen, you don't have to worry that if you humble yourself, you're going to be left to the dogs. God will redeem. God will raise up if we bow our knee. You know, there's a, there's a passage in Chronicles that says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. I will forgive their sin. If my people will humble themselves. But humility, oh my goodness, that you, 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 you know, we fear it. We do not want to be who we truly are. And so we pretend to be that which we are not to our own dismay. But those who rely upon God's mercy are not ashamed. They run to Him. They bow their knee. They confess their sins. We, we, we line up at altars when there's time to pray. We, we, we confess in front of our children. We, we live a humble life. 
And when we are not humble, we, we, we must seek confession. We must come before God, not with pride, but in humility. Not only should we respond to this great mercy with humility, but we must come before God with honesty. You know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the word sinner became synonymous with tax collector and harlots and prostitutes in biblical day. It does not necessarily infer in the parable that there is a specific sin in mind. Neither does it say that here wasn't any sin. The point that Jesus is making is not to focus on the word sinner so as to suggest to ourselves that sinning is okay and just coming before God consistently and saying, give us mercy, is what this message is about. It's not about that. What it is about is coming before God, not on the merits of one's own salvation, but on the merits of who we are without Him. In a simpler way, we come before Him not with credentials, but with great need. Without Him, who are we? Without God, we are sinners. We are, you know, are prone to use great little phrases and And one of the phrases we tend to use is, we are sinners saved by grace. But but do we recognize today that we must come before Him in honesty? When is the last time? You know where honesty reveals itself? You know where honesty makes a difference? Is when we actually, we actually stand up. We actually... We, we, we don't make our religion a private matter. It's just, it's just about us. You know, the, the, the one thing that struck me about the, 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 the kind of communal aspect of the prayer in the temple is that, is that the Pharisee would come in and temple law, of course, it was prescriptive. It was about division and separation. But he stands by himself. And yet, here comes the tax collector and he also stands aside for the different reasons. He's ashamed. He stands there in shame. The Pharisee stands there in pride. And yet, my friends, both are visible Both are seen. You know, the prayer of mercy that comes from honesty and humility is a powerful prayer not only for you, but for others. Oh, how God needs to soften our hearts enough to recognize that we live this faith not only for ourselves and how people perceive of us and what other people think of us, but how God demands of us a righteousness that comes because of His mercy and that renders us as we are before Him. He has shown us what is good and what He desires and requires of us is to act justly and to love mercy and listen to this and to walk humbly with your God. You know, mercy reveals itself in how we relate to others. And today, let me close by saying what God has laid on my heart as a husband and as a father. He has laid on my heart that I must love mercy not only for my sake, but for the sake of my wife. Do you know how your kids often show you who you are? You know what I mean? We like it when they show good things about us. When they reveal things about us that we don't like, it's kind of hard. I shouldn't use my kids as an example, but this is where I live. So maybe one day when they're out of the house and I have dogs, my illustrations will be about dogs. I, I don't know. But it is what it is, so there you go. Taking Luke and Alana to school the other day, and as we're walking, 
Alana's doing something to annoy her brother, which happens a lot. And he turns around and he just says to her, you don't say it that way. You do it this way. And then in disgust, he just goes, and keeps on walking. I jump in and I say, Luke, who made you the authority in everything? How do you know you can't do it another way? And he just looked at me and says, Dad, because that is wrong. <laughs> and in that moment, I saw myself. That's an ugly picture of myself. You know, uh, people, that, when they've got to know me over the years, they've said, man, you know, you know what, Stu, you know, you have a, you, you have a high standard, you know. <laughs> I think what they're hinting at is, is you're pretty hard sometimes. And in particular on those who are close to me. And I have to say to you today, as I, as I stand in front of my wife, that God wants this heart to be merciful. God wants to remind me, Stu, you've never been, you, you've never been worthy of anything. You've never been worthy of this love, you know, but I love you, son. And, and my hope is, is that that love would transform, uh, starting with the relationships you have. That love would look different. Listen, if we're going to love our neighbors in this time of great need, let's not love out of a sense of arrogance and self-righteousness. Let's not think because we can't help. Yeah, he need my help. Let's not think it's about us, folks, but let the mercy of God reign. Let it fall upon hearts and transform our lives. And you know how you know it's transformed? When those around you start to receive that grace and that mercy. I have been waiting for a while now for God to speak to me as clearly as he has done last night. And this is the word he gave to me. There is a lady who's gone, passed on, and um, I know we're running out of time, but I should tell you this in conclusion. Her name was Violet Eccles. Uh, she's a Jamaican lady. She was in her late 70s when I attended the church in Rosewood where I served as an associate pastor. Violet would come to me and encourage me and I say I shared this before, but for the sake of those who haven't heard this, I think it's vital to, or at least important for the message and for me. We would have a monthly prayer gathering, and prayer gatherings are notoriously small in comparison to all other gatherings in a church. And there'd be a few of us from month to month gathering on a Saturday to pray. And after about being there for about two years and praying fairly often with Mrs. Eccles, I started to get annoyed at her. Got to be honest, sometimes people annoy me. Because every time Mrs. Eccles prayed, this was a prayer. Oh, I can't do the Jamaican accent. I thought I could, but I can't. Uh, but you can back there. But anyway, you can picture Jamaican mom, right? You know this. She would pray, oh, dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we pray for our dear Pastor Stu that you would keep him humble. Now, after like two years of praying for my humility, I started to develop pride. 
Uh, I started to realize uh, the more she prayed for me how easy it is for me to be proud and how easy it is for me to live in that space. And, um, and I think for many of us that's true today. I think it's true. And um, I, 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 I don't know, folks. I, I just want to love Jesus and love people, but i got to be honest. I get in the way of that. And so this morning, as we finish with receiving uh, the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, I, I think it's a fitting way for us to receive from God His mercy and, and, and to make it the prayer of my heart, our hearts that God, that we would not be self-righteous, that we not be our own saviors, but that you alone died for us, you alone are our savior, and that it would be transformative of our lives today. Would it be great if, if we start to see that transformation happening within our homes and within our communities? Wouldn't it be great to see our children see that example of mercy in the home? Wouldn't it be life transforming? I want to ask Pastors Brad and Jeff to come and uh, just take their places up front. And, and uh, I want you to stand with me this morning as we prepare our hearts to receive uh, the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of this church. We do, however, ask that you participate with the right heart and understanding the significance of this sacrament. This sacrament is offered to those who love and desire to follow after Jesus Christ those who confess Him as Lord and Savior, and those who desire to live as He wants them to live in this world. Children are joining us, and in our community we allow parents to exercise discretion over their kids' participation in this sacrament. We don't believe it's exclusive, but we do believe that it has deep meaning and implications, and so we do ask that anyone who partakes does so understanding and with sincerity of heart. If this morning you need the mercy of God, your prayer could be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will heal and restore and forgive. If this morning you don't know and don't, you have no relationship with him, your prayer can be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we are assured that he will. We are assured of this. So, Father, now as we participate together in this sacrament, we ask that your Spirit would work within our hearts to reveal to us that which is true and that which is convicting. May we respond in humble obedience. May we not be concerned with appearance or performance. If we need to confess to one another and reconcile, let us do so as the community of faith. In this place, there will be no judgment. If this morning you would favor us, Lord, and and, and, and have your spirit of, of truth reveal and open up our hearts, then may we do so. May we not consider time right now, and may we not consider the discomfort. But may we respond to the Spirit's prompting. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.